This episode is sponsored by Horizon Capital, an M&A and micro-private equity firm that acquires and grows SaaS companies. Horizon Capital only works with SaaS companies generating between 500K and 5 million in annual recurring revenue, where they help them unlock the true value of their business and scale to the next level. Whether you're ready to move on to your next startup or want to work with the right growth partner, Horizon's team will work with you to find the best structure possible. From M&A strategy to capital investments, SaaS is all they do. Simple as that. If you're a SaaS founder with less than $5 million in annual recurring revenue and are looking to sell your business, visit horizoncapital.com today and get a free valuation. If you'd like to sponsor the SaaS District podcast or recommend any guests that you think would be valuable to be on the show, visit horizoncapital.com slash SaaS podcast today. Thanks again, folks. Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about how to accelerate your SaaS company's sales revenue and growth. Today, we have our guest, Doug Brown, joining us. Doug is the CEO of Business Success Factors, where they help SaaS businesses, owners, and CEOs to increase revenue and acquire large accounts using systems that positively increase sales of up to 862%. Doug started working in his family's business at the age of three years old and since then has built over 35 companies. After his military service, Doug worked at and became the top selling sales rep for a $2 billion company. Experiences that laid the groundwork to form his own consulting company where he consulted, coached, advised, and trained thousands of people in businesses, including teams at Nationwide, Intuit, Procter & Campbell, CBS Television, among many, many others. So. Welcome, Doug. Super excited to have you on SAS District Show today. Uh, Akil, thanks for having me. I'm also super excited to be here. Awesome. So, uh, you know, we always like to start the show, uh, you know, try to understand a little bit about you, share about, you know, your personal background, past ventures from starting in your family business at three years old. And then, you know, from there, what, what motivated you to start Business Success Factors? Uh, well, Business Success Factors came after a succession of other companies, some that, you know, uh, broke even, some failed and some did quite well, right? So I think all entrepreneurs can relate uh, to, you know, having failures and successes in, in business. But it, it all began when I was three years old. I mean, I learned to be independent and work on my own because I worked for my father's business and I swept floors starting at the bottom for, you know, a, a large 25 cents per week. And so, but, <laughs> <Nice>. you know, <laughs> at three years old though, that, you know, to get the money is a good feeling. And then, you know, as I started growing a little, uh, my parents would allow us to, you know, go with groups of younger kids and we would go down to the penny candy store. So I would have, you know, $3 and I would be able to go buy everybody candy. And it was, you know, <laughs> it was, I was the popular kid on the block at that point. So... <laughs> Yeah, so it all began there, and I learned. And you know, we were we were thrust in front of clients by the time we were, you know, five and a half, six years old, and it was like, okay, kid, go sell, you know. And uh, I still don't know. I my my dad's passed. I didn't ask him this question, but I, I still don't know if he just needed labor or if it was by design. But that's where I got the bug 
to say, okay, you know what? I want to build something on my own. I want to be independent because when I went to school, I used to get out of school. I'd go to school from like eight o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock in the morning. Then I go to work for my dad's business. And I loved being free and I didn't like being in school. So <laughs> that's kind of how it all started. And, that, and business success factors came along uh, because of all my experience working in the training industry and realizing that a lot of companies, they really don't have systematic processes or systematic optimization or revenue growth strategies around, you know, how do you actually build a business? And then how do you optimize it once it's built? Because a lot of times revenues will get stuck. And I just was naturally doing this when I worked, uh, I was the president of Tony Robbins and uh, Chet Holmes. Um, and I was, uh, I was president of training and sales. And I was coaching and, and consulting with people. And I was realizing, man, you know, these people are getting huge growth. And I didn't realize it was kind of a skill. I just thought it was something you always did. So that's how Business Success Factors started. And the name Business Success Factors came up because... Um, frankly, it was a highly sought keyword with low competition. <laughs> <laughs> so that was it. That was the, that was the, the factor was the, there. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> I, I mean, beyond that, I mean, the, the wording is, is important there because, you know, business and success, two words that I, and I also the factors around it, you know, we generally ask a, a variant of this question near the end of the interview. Um, but I want to ask this up front because I think it's relevant here. You, you've built, you know, over 35 businesses in your career, uh, you know, failures, positive, whatever, you know, all, all kinds of stories there. But I'd love to hear from you. In your opinion, what does a successful business look like to you? It's one that meets your personal objectives as well as the corporate objectives. Mm. So, you know, especially with a lot of uh, companies that get to a place in there, you, you know, I'm, I'm sure you must have talked to somebody that, you know, gets to a place in business and they're like, ah, I can't stand this anymore. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm successful, but I, I don't like it. Yep. And, you know, I, I've had a few of those as well. Um, and so what I've learned is design your life first and build your business around it. Mm -hmm. And you'll be happier and you'll be more productive and you'll probably like your business more. Um, but a lot of times people design their business first or they're working their business as a primary and forgetting their personal life. Mm -hmm. And so what ends up happening is somewhere down the line that catches up to most people. Right. Um, so I've, I've, I, the one that fulfills the personal objectives as well as the corporate objectives. Makes sense. I mean, and, and that's funny you say that because, you know, that, at Horizon Capital where, you know, where, where, we're at, that's generally what we see when we work with founders looking to sell their companies. They're, you know, generally five, six, seven years in, they've built a good company. There's good traction. They've got good revenue. They're profitable. Um, but they just, you know, get a point where they burn out. They're like, I, I don't enjoy working on this. I want to move on. And they're just like, you know, their mind share is gone. And I mean, that's, that's good for us, but you know, they probably didn't think it through from the, from the beginning. Right. Yeah, I agree. You know, they, they, and likely they built it on their back. So that's yeah. part of the challenge too. Right. So then when they want to sell, it's, you know, they're the pivot point. And so, you know, it's like, you know, having a doctor in a practice that everybody just loves that doctor. As soon as you remove that doctor, the practice, if it wasn't a practice, it, it, it you know, numbers drop significantly. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, and my, and my father had that happen to him. I, you know, uh, fortunately through his mistake, I learned this, you know, after mm -hmm. 18 years in business, one day thriving business, it was doing great. Um, I was in the military and I remember one day getting a call and he said, Hey, I shut the business down. And I went, what do you mean? He said, well, I walked in there, I turned the key in the lock and I haven't been back since. 
<laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, wow. You know, and he had, he had thousands of customers um, mm. that relied upon it, but he, and then he went fishing. You know what I mean? So he, he bought a boat, went commercial fishing, did that for the, uh, almost the remainder of his life and as well as a couple of other businesses. That, but yeah, I mean, it, it, people can, if they don't figure out the personal side, then they tend to structure the business in the wrong model, right. which then leads them to exactly what you just said. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I, I'm always an advocate for that, right? Like don't just build a business because, you know, it, it seems cool and it seems profitable. And it seems like the right thing, you know, build, build for what works for you. Um, and you said it's on the personal level, you know, adding to that, what does success mean to you on, on the personal side? Uh, having discretionary time to spend with my daughters and my wife, mm-hmm. um, there's nothing more that makes me happier in life than doing that. So, you know, I structure my days and my business around that. Um, and, you know, my daughters are getting older. They're almost out of the house. Yep. So, you know, as a father who really cares about them, I mean, I want, I want to spend as much time with them as possible, right? Uh, that's, that's just the way it is. So, yeah, for me, that's, that's, that's the measuring stick for myself. That's the, the ultimate form of freedom, right? Time with, mm-hmm. time with people you love. Um, cool. So let, let's dig in more. You know, uh, many of our listeners listening today, uh, they're, they're founders of B2B SaaS companies. So before we get into, you know, what's working well, I'd love to hear your take on what you typically see them doing wrong. You come in, you see these blind spots that you find, whether that's in their business model or whatever you see, that basically limits their growth and, and reaching their full potential. So on the SaaS side or on, yeah. uh, okay, oh, uh, I mean, I mean, SaaS founders, I mean, you can speak general that, I mean, it would apply across them as well. Yeah. I, I, I mean, for SaaS companies, uh, the number one thing that I see that SaaS companies make a mistake is they forget they're dealing with humans. They're, they're trying to grow their revenues without talking to people, mm. right? <laughs> after the, especially after the first sale. So what ends up happening is they have poor communication and... Uh, what what tends to happen is they are not reselling to the same client base. They're mm-hmm. not using upsells, cross-sells, downsells. They're not uh, innovating on that process. They're not doing a great job on referrals. Um, and, you know, so if you sell somebody and leave them alone, a certain percentage will stick. Mm-hmm. And, if, and if companies just looking at like, oh, okay, top line, you know what, we just want this then it's okay to run that model. But if they really want to grow year after year after year, they must expand the sale because otherwise mm. they're just working hard. And, yeah. you, you know, it without that sales expansion, I mean, that and a lot of times that sales expansion is huge, high profit for them. And, right. uh, but they don't do a really good job and they don't follow up a follow through. I know, I know, you know, I probably use, I don't know, 10, 12 different SaaS applications in my business and there's only been one out of the 10 or 12 that has ever called me and to talk to me to find out how I'm doing and what's going on. <laughs> but uh, the last time they did that, I re-upped for two years. Right. I mean, that, that, that makes complete sense. I mean, I don't remember the last time somebody called me after signing up for whether it's a trial or some kind of product. I get a couple of onboarding emails and, and I never even check out. I usually unsubscribe. Um, but yeah, if somebody called me and said, Hey, like, I'm, I'm happy to give you, walk you through, explain everything. And Hey, I'm your, your, your point of contact. If you get stuck on anything, I mean, wow, now I'm, I'm connected. So that seems so simple. I, I, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> look, business is easy when you remove people, 
yeah. right from the equation. But when mm -hmm. you add people, there's always a corporate objective, but the person who's buying always has a corporate and a personal objective. Right. And right now I'm about to dump one of the SaaS providers that I have because I've only been there two months. I'm having a little challenge figuring it out. I'm busy. I don't have time to do this. I'd pay for it. But every time I send something in, I get a, I get a, a generic frequently asked questions list back. Right. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know. I mean, you know, if we had, you know, even took five logins for, you know, 10 years with this company, that's a lot of money they're, they're dropping uh, right. based on what they charge per user. It's funny. I mean, they, yeah, they're trying to balance that, you know, scalability with, you know, less, less human interaction, but it's actually getting worse. I see that, you know, now they remove the phone number. They also remove a way to ch uh, email them or chat with them. They just yeah. send you to like a, a knowledge base, like read all this stuff and, and figure out. I was like, I just want to talk to somebody. I need to figure this out, but... Right. Well, and, 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 and there's always a segment, you know, I mean, uh, not to downplay Google. I like Google as a company, but, you know, I'm having some uh, communications challenges with them right now. And every time I send it in, it's like, okay, well, um, you know, it was on YouTube TV, right? They double billed mm. me for three months. Mm. No one will talk to me about it. <laughs> no, 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 no one. And so, so Google, if you're hearing this, um, you know, so I ended up pushing back on my American Express, you know, platinum card and they just like, Hey, look, okay, we'll push back. And so that's how we resolve the problem. But that does not leave a good uh, feeling for me to, you know, if somebody asked me a question, like, what are you doing for television? And I tell, you know, I'm not going to tell them, oh, good Google TV, because then my reputation's at stake if they double bill them. So it's all exactly. about human to human. Every business, really, Akil, if we think about this, there was no internet 40 or 50 years ago that was standardized, right? There was no right. online. Yeah. So if we run an online business as we were going to run an offline business and use the technology and leverage that the online business will give us, we'll have a much more profitable SaaS company. Absolutely. Love it. Um, cool. I mean, so for, you know, B2B SaaS companies, they're looking to optimize their sales conversions within, within their sales process. Um, so we obviously love to hear more, you know, takeaways that they can implement today. You mentioned that some of the, most founders, you know, when they work with you in the first three to six months are seeing, you know, somewhere between 12 and 39% increase in their sales. Um, what are some things you suggest to them that they can start looking at within their business and what are ways they can start implementing those today? So re-engagement strategies for one. So this, one of the, the big mistakes that people make is they have uh, past clients or they have dormant clients and they leave them past or they leave them dormant. And the reality is if they go back and they just start touching base with that, those past clients, there's already familiarity there. Right. So it's not like this is a cold lead. Uh, a, a, a f amount of them, uh, you know, a percentage of them will re-engage and rebuy. Right. So it's untapped revenue and profit at that point because they've already spent their marketing expense in getting the client and then they lost the client, right? So um, I see companies in general are really poor at doing this. Mm. Um, and, you know, they think I'm a genius. I'll come into their company, I'll help them. We'll go back after their old client base. All of a sudden they're starting to generate sales and they're like, man, this guy's smart, right? Mm. Um, I'm not dumb, but the reality is a re-engagement strategy is, is, is usually the number one thing to start looking at. The, uh, the number two thing would be what is going on with your existing clients? So 
get in touch with the existing clients, find out what they're using, how they're using it, what they need, right? Because there's upsell opportunities within the existing client base. There's also referral opportunities within the dormant client base and the existing client base. Mm. Uh, you know, measuring every single metric on a micro level is really important for any company. Most companies are really not good at this. They, they look at top line, and, you know, that they're not measuring things from like, okay, we got a lead, we got a lead. Okay, what's the next step that that lead's supposed to take? Then right. what's that measurement, right? Because <laughs> I, I had a laugh one time, time, a company was generating thousands, literally, of leads a week. And they had a really big sales force. Uh, so they asked me to take a look and I discovered that 62% of their leads that came in were never contacted. 62%. Right? 62%, oh. right? Now they were making money, but 62% never made it into stage one because they never were contacted. So I went back to the owner of this company. Um, they were doing 48 million at the time. And I told him and he, he, he told me, no, I'm crazy, right? That's, that's <laughs> impossible. So I showed him all the numbers. And uh, a day later, he called me back and he said, okay, I've got over my pride. <laughs> what, do we, what do we do, right? And within the first couple of months, that 62% was cut in half. And he had a static close rate on the back of it. If we got him into stage two, we knew it was going to close. So over the next two years, they grew from 48 million to 110 million because they kept reducing that ratio. Mm. Um and then adding some other things in as well. But I mean, yeah, so that would be a, another one. Measure all the ratios. Uh, referrals are, are critical. Um, and most companies are terrible uh, at, at doing referrals. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, referrals are easy. You put a process in, but you got to have an active referral program, not a passive one. That means active means you're proactively, you know, synergizing this whole thing through marketing and sales throughout the process. So referrals are happening and mm. expected. Um, and I and I think the last one would be follow up for for a lot of companies. They're they're very um, some companies are inept in follow up. They don't follow up at all, right? And mm. uh, I'll give you an example. Okay, I, I'm trying to buy a LinkedIn software right now. So anybody's listening, uh, when you get my contact information, if you have LinkedIn software, contact me. I'm actively looking to buy in 2020. So that means for over the next eight eight days or, or 2021, whatever it is. I talked to a gentleman. And uh, it was about $4,000 uh, pay in full for, for a year for this service. And it was back in October. And I told him, I said, look, I can't pull the trigger on this right now because I just have all these year-end initiatives. But this is going to happen for Q1. So let's get back in December. And I'll, I'm, I'm a buyer. Just call me. Mm -hmm. Like, just ask for my credit card. We don't need to talk. <laughs> anyway. yeah. Do you know I've never got a call? Don't, don't, I'm not surprised. <laughs> right? So, yeah. so imagine that's $4,000 and that's happening 300 times in a year. Mm. Right? Just amongst the, a, a sales force. Yeah. Um, you know, or a thousand times a year. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a lot of money per year yeah. that is not being gathered. And I'm sure the owners of those companies are, would not be happy with this uh, right. conversation. So follow up. Yeah, I mean, it sounds so simple. So you mentioned about the referral side, I guess for people who have some kind of dormant, you know, user base that they haven't tapped into trying to, to monetize that referral side, 
How do you kind of approach them? Are you offering them some kind of incentive, like becoming affiliates and, hey, you know, do you have any friends? We'll give you 10% off. Or how, how do you kind of start that conversation? I feel that's a, a It depends one. on the business and depends mm-hmm. on what margins are. But I mean, the reality is the first thing is reestablish the relationship. Right. Right. So uh, sometimes people will give you referrals just to, you know, get you off the phone. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, it's... The first thing is you must reestablish the relationship. Referrals are earned. Yeah. And that's what people, you know, they they don't know their value that the person has is uh, brought into their life through their programs, products, or services. So they're not sure what the value is. And the value of quantification is what you want to build off of for the referral. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, you know, if I had a particular software that... Uh, helped me sell, I don't know, 30 new sales in one year and that's it, right? And, you know, my average sale is, you know, whatever, $5,000, right? That's $150,000. If I'm paying $1,000 a month or $12,000 a year to get $150,000, that's huge value to me for in different ways. Number right. one, it's it's tangible on the ROI, but number two, it allows me to work easier and be less stressed, right? So mm-hmm. those are all value points. I would refer all day long on something like that. If somebody asked me what I, I get out of this and the, set up the expectation of how the referral is supposed to be. So mm-hmm. whether you structure it and you compensate or not compensate, I have found that most times you do not have to compensate for referrals. Right. If, if, yeah, if you prove it and your service is worthwhile and you see the value of it and you can highlight it, I mean, like you said, you, you build that trust and uh, you earn it and then people are happy to share it, right? Yeah, uh, just a lot of companies are reluctant to do it. Not the companies, people within. I, right. I had a I had a client, they uh, they wanted, they only had, they had a small uh, sales force, but I think it was like six people at the time. And, <laughs> and I looked, they weren't doing referrals. So I said, well, why don't we try referrals? And the sales team pushed back. That doesn't work in this industry. We're in the real estate industry. It doesn't work, right? That type of thing. I'm like, real estate referrals doesn't work. Okay, let's let's humor me, will you? So I gave them the the process. And the first week they came back and they and I said, how'd it go? And they go, ah, we got one referral. See, told you this doesn't work. Six of us, we got one referral. I said, let's do it another week. Came back the next week. They go, oh, we only got one referral again this week. Say, we this is dumb. We shouldn't be spending any time asking these questions. I said. <laughs> just humor me for a week or two more. How about that? The next week they came back and they said, yeah, we got one referral. And, and, and it was different because they weren't pushing back. And I said, so mm-hmm. what, what, tell me about the referral. They go, yeah, we got it. And we closed it. It was 3000 locations across the United States. so so the reason I tell that story is because it's to the extreme right but the reality is it was sitting there Mm. yeah one I mean one doesn't sound big until you know how big it can be yeah 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 cool so I mean you know we're talking about you know existing user base um, but obviously people want to focus on top line growth here Um, so one one thing we see is you know SaaS companies maybe they're looking to move up market and maybe start targeting larger clients. So I know that's something you you like to talk about is moving up up market. Um, for for those who are you know maybe looking to to get in front of those, how do you suggest they get in front of the right a in front of the right decision makers? You know, able to close those larger deals when they've only worked with 
the smaller guys and without feeling that, you know, imposter syndrome where like, how, how do I compete with the big guys when, you know, I've always been focused on small guys and who am I to, to come up and, and talk to these big guys? So it goes back to the value proposition that, that somebody offers, right? So mm-hmm. it, it, I have a, uh, I'll call him a very good friend because he is a very good friend. Uh, his name is Tom. Um, and he started up four different companies from startups and grew all of them, uh, each one of them, I should say, between $100 million and $200 million within four years. Oh. Now, he was a small company in the beginning, but they were mm-hmm. selling to large companies. Um, I think they have 37% of the Fortune 500, if I remember correctly. Oh. Um, right? So they're an unknown entity. They're going up against you know big companies. And he has a whole process for this. And so, you know, I was fortunate enough to know him and study under him. So the, the reality is that if you're a small company and you want to play bigger and you want to be a big company, you're not an imposter for going after large accounts. You just be truthful with them and tell them, hey, look, you're my largest account. I'm going to take care of you like you've never been taken care of before because, you know, you're my oxygen line. I mean, <laughs> you know, you are, you are the account that I'm looking for. And, you know, and, and position differently, not differentiate, but different. Be honest. Remember, there's behind every corporate buy, there is a personal agenda. And so if you can go and, and go to those personal agendas, then what ends up happening is you become a favorable player. And this is how smaller companies became big quickly, because if you're constantly going after small clients, you'll grow may- maybe, maybe at market rate. Mm-hmm. If you're going after mid-sized clients, you might grow 5 10% above the, the market rate. But if you go for very large clients, those clients, you go, oh my gosh, I could just never get those clients, which by the way, is not true. Um, <laughs> you, you'll grow exponentially faster than the market rate. So I, the other thing that people must know about large sales is it's not a one-on-one sale. It is a right. team play. Right. So for example, if they're on their side... They're bringing in human resources, engineering, uh, you know, you name it, right? Whatever department. You better have somebody who can speak their language and be able to talk to them. You know, if they bring in IT, right? Uh, Don't try to be a salesperson selling to an IT person because it's not going to work, right? right? So you must have an IT person who understands uh, the other people, you know? So a lot of times people go, well, how do I do that? Well, you you can actually ask people and that you can hire them for the meetings. Right? There's all kinds of ways of doing it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you definitely have to, if if a company wants to get larger, I mean, I, I don't know if this is true numbers or not now, Akil. I, I believe it was at one point, I read it. It was like 70% of salesforce.com's, don't sue me Salesforce if the numbers are off, <laughs> right? But a majority of their revenue was in the $125 and up login. Really? Hmm. Yeah, the majority. Mm-hmm. So again, I, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, so I'm not sure, but this was a few, you know, several years ago, I read this. And that was when I was looking at the SaaS industry. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go out. I'm going to do what they did, mm. <laughs> right? They communicate yeah. with people. They put people on the streets. They, they, they're, you know, they're not the least costly in in the world and they position differently and they always have. Right. And, and then, you know, adding to that, how do you balance that focus? So, I mean, 
you mentioned going after the bigger clients, but there's also the fact you have those smaller clients and trying to retain them. But then when you, if you get these big clients, now you're, the problem is you're, you're kind of, you're not spread out as much. You're, you're really dependent on, you know, say a single source of income. Like you said, that's your oxygen to your overall business. So if you were to lose them, now you're kind of, you know, out of business, right? You're, you're very dependent on them. Because yeah. that's something we look at when we look at an acquisition. If there is a company that, you know, 50 or 30% of the revenue comes from one client, we're, you know, we're scared of that. <laughs> I, I would suspect you would be if you were going to invest <laughs> in a company like that. And, <laughs> and, and the reality is you just, you can't have one big client. Mm. Like if you're going to go into large sales, it's expensive to get large sales. So you must put a budget together to go after these large sales. And, you know, so you titrate the, the, depending on, again, let's go back. What's the personal agenda and what's the business supposed to do, right? So once you're clear on that and everybody's clear in the organization, then you can titrate it. You can say, okay, I want this percentage of small sales. Um, I want this percentage of medium sales. I want this percentage of large sales. And the reality is, you know, attention flows, right? Where, where, where our focus goes. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a consistent effort to go after larger accounts, let's take that account, you, you know, you were just talking about, they have one, one thing, 50% of their revenue, like, you know, but if they had five of them, yeah. right. And it was 50% of their revenue, you go, okay, we're going to take a 10% hit if we, if we, you know, if we go, but so you just, it's, it's a, it's a bad move to have one company with the majority of your revenue, because sometimes, you know, I had IndyMac bank as a client, mm. they went bankrupt. So, <laughs> you know, and we worked on that account for 18 months to get that account. So wow. it, um, you know, so it does happen, but it didn't knock us out of business because we had other larger clients. You know, we had Enterprise Rent-A-Car and other clients. And so you definitely do not want it, but it is a team, you know, not one one account, but it, and it is definitely a team sell. And you want to titrate it based on the 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 risk tolerance stress levels, if you will, right? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah but remember, usually small clients, unless they're automated, are eating up a tremendous amount of resources. And if you're selling one large client, all right, you might have to hire a couple people. You know, so sad, right? You, you get a million right. dollar client, you got to hire two more people. Right? <laughs> exactly. But, but yeah, they stick around, they take less time of your your day and they, they, they appreciate the value of what you bring. Um, you know, and then adding to that, uh, I think pricing is an important part of this. So when it comes to pricing, you suggest that companies actually raise their prices to their clients. Um, how, how do you find that balance of A, you know, like not scaring off those clients, B, staying competitive and then, you know, positioning yourself to to justify the higher premium price when the, the competition is maybe, uh, you know, lower priced or? Yeah, I mean, again, so it's, now, not every company should raise their price immediately, right? I mean, it's there's a strategy to it. Okay. Um, however, <laughs> let's let's take a restaurant. I'll explain it this way. Okay. I don't know. Uh, what's your favorite meal? <laughs> what, yeah. Right. Um, so uh, uh, medium rare steak. Say. Eh? All right. So you go <laughs> in, you get a medium rare steak, and let's just say the steak is uh, I don't know twenty dollars, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, you go in uh, a, a month later and that same steak now is $21.50. Okay. Are you not going to buy the steak? No, I'll just be like, ah, inflation, things are getting expensive, they increased their price. I understand. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. now what that represents to the restaurant is a 7% increase 
mm. in profit. Mm. <laughs> right? I mean, there's a little bit of, you know, maybe a credit card fee against it or something else. But the reality is it's a, it's a significant bump in profit. So mm -hmm. if they could get a 7% increase in profit across the board by just incrementally raising up the price mm. without rejecting the client, if you go from 20 to $40 or $42, right. you, you're probably not going to invest in that stake again. Mm. So looking at the industry average isn't always a bad idea, but judging yourself against the industry average can be a bad idea. Right. So I just, um, I read something the other day. It was like Gordon Ramsay, who's a, you know, celebrity chef, right? Opening yep, yep. a new restaurant. And I think it was like the hamburger was over a hundred dollars. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> like $108, right? And I'm like thinking to myself, who is going to invest a hundred and whatever dollars into a hamburger? Like, and I'm thinking, you know what? I would just want to try it because it's like... <laughs> what what does this hamburger actually taste like, right? right? But the reality is there are people who shop on a regular basis who will go in there and have lunch five days a week. Right. And, right. So it depends on the market segment that you're going after and the value that you can bring to that market sector. Too many companies are pricing themselves on price or industry mm. averages or whatever, and they're not basing their fees on value. Right. Make, makes sense. And then, so you mentioned about that incremental increase. Uh, do you have a framework, anything you suggest on, you know, how often should they be increasing it? Is this quarterly, annually? I, well, they want to look at it quarterly. Okay. And then really get serious annually. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I just had uh, the two things happen to me in the last couple of days. I use T-Mobile for, for my carrier, right? So T-Mobile, I, I have Netflix included in my program. And they came back and they said, oh, we've got to raise your Netflix account because there's been some changes and it's, you know, a mere $2 a month, right? And I'm thinking, man, there's got to be how many hundreds of millions or tens of millions of people at $2 a month, right? So good move on their part because I'm not canceling it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I first got it, I was like, oh, drats. You know, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to. And um, so... You know, there's there's different ways of doing this, but what you're you know what you don't want to do is is do what what was the Netflix I think did this one time they went from you know wherever they were to a really high high uh, up uh, up upcharge and they lost a lot of their clientele yeah, you know quickly. So there is a tolerance per industry or a tolerance per um, so there's not like this one consistent thing like, oh, you know, do this formula and you'll come up with the exact number. Um, you know, a lot of times companies have not raised their prices in, you know, years, sometimes decades. Right. And, you know, it's easy to, to do it with those folks. Um, and it depends, like restaurants have a certain level of tolerance, you know, I'm, you know, a login on SaaS. I don't think it's going to, again, if you're doing $45 a month on your login and you go to say, I don't know, 47 it's probably not going to throw your client base off. Right. But that extra $2 a month amongst hundreds of thousands of subscribers it's pretty is a lot, of, a lot of additional annual profit at the end of the year. Right. So I think the key is just to, to test it out and see how, you know, don't, don't, don't go too big and go slow and slowly increase until yeah, you, you hit a point. Yeah. And, 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 and talk, to your, talk to your folks before, before you do it, right? Because mm. um, a lot of times they'll say, no, I won't take a $5 increase, but you know, I, I, I do a dollar 50, right? Yeah. And yeah. 
And so, okay, so now you know you're sort of safe there. And when you talk to existing clients about that, they're never going to want to pay more. So they're always going to give you a lower number for the mm -hmm. most part. Sure. But yeah, I mean, we mm -hmm. used to have focus groups in the old days, right? Today, yeah. we, <laughs> yeah, we don't yeah. use them as much. <laughs> sure. Um, so I, I want to talk more, shift gears towards the people side. So I think that's a, obviously an important factor building a sales team. I always find it like a struggle when it comes to recruiting, you know, high quality sales teams, managing them more so when managing remotely, um, as I, th I feel they need that constant drive and, you know, team environment to push them and, and keep that, you know, positive, uh, loop there. Is, is there any suggestions you have on whether it's the recruitment process to finding, you know, these top sales talent and then making sure they deliver those results? Yeah, there's, there's definitely a process to it. Um, mm -hmm. and it's well-defined. You know, the first question I would say is if you have to consistently motivate your team, mm. did you hire correctly? Mm. Did you actually hire for sales DNA that actually is self-promoting and self, you know, driving? Because so many companies, they're not patient enough. That's part of the problem in hiring, right? there. You know, it's kind of like, all right, so they hire quickly and then they turn that person over four times in a year and then they find the right person. Right, mm -hmm. that type of thing, yeah. Um, and that's expensive. That is really expensive. You know, there's all kinds of statistics, but let's say it's 150 percent of base salary or you know uh, overall comp to actually turn them over. And Akil, you may know the numbers a little more than I do at this point, right? However, it's expensive. So if yeah. you turn somebody four times and it takes you five times to hire, and it took you you know three months and then three months and then three months and then three months. You're out a year before you found the right person. If you spent right. five months doing the right thing and hired the right person, you're getting more than a two and a half to one return right then and there mm. um, without the headaches and without the stress. So yeah, there, there's, a, there's a definitely a process to finding them and hiring them and then you've got to train them. And as you said, you know, you, you, may, you may have to, you, you will want to stay in constant contact with them to, to continue to keep the, the saw sharp, if you will, you know, you're sharpening the saw every, every day. Sure. But the, the big question that I ask companies all the time is when they're trying to hire top talent like this, because everybody wants the best, right. right? The question is, are you an A player company? Mm. <laughs> right? Are you set up as an A player company? Because I can teach you the process, but if you're not there and you don't have a clear A player strategy coming and bringing them on and onboarding them and consistently training them and having coaching and doing all of that other stuff, A mm. players are going to go somewhere else mm. because A players know they can sell. Right. right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was, uh, I worked for a company one, at one time. I was the number one rep, uh, braggadocious here, self-promotion. <laughs> but, you know, there were 315 reps. I was the number one rep. I got offers all the time from competitors right. and other people, you know, um, and, but my company took care of me. Mm -hmm. And so I stayed. And the, the reality is you got to be an A player company. So if you're not set up as an A player company, then employing a process that's just going to wash it out at the end doesn't really make sense as well. Right. But part of the thing is slow down, have a repeatable process that is measured so one of the things that uh, uh, companies, a lot of times in their interview process, for example, like, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll ask different questions of different people. Right. No. <laughs> mm. Ask the same questions and lead score it. Right. Give, this, give the thought to the question and have high credibility 
questions and then lead score them. Hey, look, just like you would lead score a marketing lead, right? If it's coming right. in and they do these type of things or get these type of answers, they're a higher value client, right? Um, and use the right assessments. I mean, too many companies are trying to hire people on personality assessments. Right. We, right? It's like they, they might be likable, but that doesn't mean they have the will to sell. True. Right. So there's all kinds, of, there's a bunch of factors in here, but there is a highly defined process that if you want a, a talent, you can get it and it's duplicatable. Mm. Um, but the bottom line is step back, be a little more patient. Uh, you know, it is a, it's definitely a, a road to, to walk, not just sprint down and, yeah. you know, hire appropriately and, you know, and train them and you got to be able to coach them. I mean, it's, mm. so many companies don't have coaching. Um, right. but yeah, that's what I would do. Nice. Yeah. I love it. Now. So assume, you know, we're at that stage, we, we take our time, we find the right people, we do the right interview. Um, now you build that, you know, high quality sales team, your, your company's a, a, a player as well. Um, what does your typical, you know, you, you do sales training, uh, you know, where do you help them on whether it's prospecting, conversion, referral and follow-ups? I know you mentioned referrals and follow-ups, but is there anything else you can do on, on, you know, maybe some small tips on each stage you can share? Yeah. I mean, you know, E, all of the above, right? I mean, you look at the company and the first thing is you got to get truthful on the goal with the company. Mm. Mm. And then you get truthful with each salesperson. I'm not saying honest. I'm saying truthful. There's a difference, right? Honesty yeah. is subjective. Truth is objective. We can measure it. And once you get that down and let's say they want to grow and they, they're committed to growing, yeah, then, you know, prospecting is is there's process, skills, and people. So always focus first on the process. Okay. So around prospecting, for example, what is the process of prospecting? I will go, I will go and talk with companies and look at their people and they have no, zero, no personal marketing plan for their, for their own representation, right? Mm. And as a salesperson, they are an entrepreneur. They, they are responsible for their own business unit, but they have no marketing plan, no marketing calendar, no prospecting calendar. Nothing is, is there. It's just, we're going to make a hundred cold calls a day and see what falls out, right? That's, that's typical. Um, but the reality is what I teach them is I call it six ways. So six ways of getting clients new. Right. So I don't know if you can see it, Akil, but up on my board up here, I have things written across and there's, mm -hmm. there's 12 different ways in 2021. My company's going after their prospecting. Okay. Now, did we start out with 12? No, you can't. Right. You got to take one a month or one every other month and build up. And then you, you test it, you grade it, you figure out, okay, did this work? Let's make this change. By the way, make one change at a time, folks, not mm -hmm. multiple changes, right? Mm -hmm. And measure it and then keep, and then eventually it's like, look, okay, let's say it's a, an A a game, right? Great. You keep that one. Let's say that one's an F, you know, the next one's an F. Okay, we cut that one. We, we fill it in. But you want to have, as a sales rep, six different ways that are going on that are as automated as possible bringing in new business. So that's the first on prospecting. A lot of times conversion rates are down because there's incongruency in the messaging mm. and incongruency between the marketing and sales team. Okay. So, you know, I don't know, take a word like fencing, right? Uh, you get, you know, we sell fencing. Well, people are coming for, you know, sword lessons and you sell picket fence or something like that, right? So it's, it's, 
it, I've always expressed to companies that marketing and sales is one process. Right. Right. Now, marketers will argue with that. They don't like the sales team. The sales team will argue market is a useless. Right. But the mm-hmm. reality is it is one process designed to sell something. Right. And, and so you want that consistency across. Conversion uh, is improved a lot today by uh, having the right master of communication. Mm. A lot of times people are just pitching, selling products and services, just throwing proposals out there. They're not qualifying and getting to the frustrations or pain of the buyer. Mm. Now, I said buyer. A lot of people will go to decision makers. Mm-hmm. Mm. They can be one and the same, but not always. Right. Don't talk with decision makers. Talk with buyers because buyers are the ones who actually will hand you the check, right? Those are the important ones. Now, you know, others are influencers and decision makers. You got to talk with them and treat them with respect, but understand you only want to deal with buyers and your conversion rates will go up just by dealing with buyers. Got it. Um, And then, you know, we talked about, I think you mentioned referrals. Um, (laughs) It's a must, you know. Uh, Did I miss one point? Uh, and then follow-ups, which I think we talked about. Yeah, as well. follow-ups, yeah. I mean, they're critical. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that, that conversion part, I think, yeah, like you said, you get the, you know, not, don't get the decision maker, get the buyer on the phone. Uh, be more mindful in, in kind of your, your conversations and listening and, and, you know, don't just get right into the pitch. Is there anything else you can do to improve conversion rates? I don't know, like, is, is the quality of the proposal matter? Does, should you be asking better qualifying questions? Is it, you know, pricing? I guess all of the above, right? It, it, it's all of the above. But I mean, yeah. you know, pricing is usually the least important if value is established and you find the pains and frustrations and you can quantify what that means to them in terms of an ROI in tangible and non, in, in, in you know, tangible, you know, direct money in or whatever, but also the, the personal values as well, the personal returns and some even the intangibles, but you want to stay more toward the tangible than the intangible. Right. But a, a lot of times people are missing, they'll come in, they'll, they'll get into the, the play, they'll start launching immediately into, well, let me show you what my product or service can do for you. <laughs> it's like, it's like, no, 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 no. You don't know what they're thinking. So the first step is, you know, connection rapport. But after that, start understanding where they're coming from. And you can find out all the, by the way, you should know the budget. If there's mm-hmm. one, one should know, you know, the, the players that are involved in it, that, you know, the decision makers, the buyers, the influence, everything before you submit the proposal. Right. Right. The proposal should just be an extension. Uh, and the proposal really should be the closing document. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of a lot of people have it out of sync and that's one of the reasons that conversion's low as well. Yeah, I, I see that a lot where people expect the proposal to do the selling where it's just, uh, it's just it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be, right? That's just the last part to, like you said, a closing document. We, we used to have a, a, a thought process early on, you know, like we'll just give them everything that we can in their proposal. So, you know, uh, and it hit me one day that we had like a 20 page proposal, like it just spelled out everything. And I'm sitting in front of a CEO of a company one day and, he, and he, I go, did you get the proposal? And this was a lot of years ago when I was younger. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I did. It's right here. He pulls up the 20 pages and I'm like feeling proud that he's got all my 20 pages. And he goes, yeah. And he goes right to the end page. And he goes, um, is this the one? <laughs> he never read it. Right? Right. He, never, he looked at the line, saw the pricing, saw what I was in there, just skimmed through it and never read the proposal. And he's like this, 
Well, it didn't take more than two or three more of these to, for me to figure out, send a two-page proposal, right? And yeah. then they would at least read the proposal and, and, and go from there. But a lot of times people are just sending, like you said, the proposal and they're, they're trying to get that thing to close when the reality is you're dealing with people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Doug, so I just want to shift gears here a little bit, go into the personal side here. Uh, what's one advice you wish you had known and would tell your 25 year old self or maybe someone who, who if you were going to start over and, and build your first B2B SaaS company? Oh, there are so many lessons. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me think. I'll pick out one. Um, I think the number one would be when you're beginning a SaaS project, a lot of times people, when they're beginning a, a SaaS project, they're trying to build a multi-million or a hundred million dollar company before they build their first 300,000, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So what I would recommend somebody is take one problem that you know affects the market, that your software, whatever, whatever you're doing, is going to be able to solve for that market. And then before you build it, talk to the market. <laughs> Let them tell you what that number one thing is. Mm. It's a great strategy. You can get pre-orders. You can you know, self-fund. There's all kinds of ways of doing that. But one of the biggest mistakes that I have made in the SaaS business is thinking that you know, and in other businesses too. And I'm not alone. I have clients who have done the same thing. We all think our ideas are brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, and we all think they're going to work. And the reality is they don't all work. And, but if you ask the market first and you focus on one thing, uh, what was that movie? City Slickers. I don't know if you ever saw it. There was a guy named Curly in the movie. He said, you know, life, it comes down to one thing. Mm. And, in, in business, when you're first starting out, don't, you can't be everything to everybody. So you, you take the one thing that the majority wants, build that, sell that to them, then capitalize on that. You now have revenue coming through the door and you have some money to reinvest into the process. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. So it sounds like focus, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the, the lack of stress is two things. I mean, stress is caused by two things. Lack of uh, clarity, number one, mm -hmm. and then not being able to live in ambiguity. Right. Yeah. I guess that's, is a good book. Uh, I think it's called the, the one thing by Gary Keller. I think that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Really yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, real yeah, estate, yeah. uh, gent. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Uh, speaking of books, um, who or what are the three best resources, whether it's books or, you know, uh, people, maybe mentors or people you follow who you would say have been instrumental to your success over the last few years and you, and you can give credit to. Oh, um, Alan Weiss. Uh, Alan is a gentleman who's written 65 books on consulting or maybe more now. Um, smart dude, very smart guy. Uh, his favorite book, oh, I have two of them. Uh, one is value-based fees. Uh, how do you sell on value? Mm -hmm. And the other one is called the millionaire maverick or the maverick entrepreneur. And it's basically how to be a nice contrarian and, you know, um, and invoke responses from people where they wouldn't give them to you before. Um, and, nice. and it's got a lot of great life lessons in, in both books. Uh, another book would be, or another mentor and book would be uh, Mr. Russ Whitney. Uh, Russ is, I mean, he, you know, he, he's got a great story. He had a billion, billion dollar company, lost the majority of it overnight, lost his family, lost all kinds of things. Wrote this great book called Inner Voice um, because, you know, he went on a quest. He's like, well, wait a minute, I was, you know, doing a billion dollars. Who's right? 
right? I mean, mm. so he questioned religion. He, you know, he's like, is Oprah Winfrey right? Is you know, who's right, right? So he went on this quest and he put it in a book and it's really helpful to entrepreneurs, um, you know, because remember, you can't separate the personal from the business, even right. if you try. Uh, the third, third person would be Andy Miller. Uh, he runs a company called Big Swift Kick. Okay. Uh, Andy is like my brother, but uh, I've learned so much from him about, uh, about selling in general. So he was kind of one of the guys who first got me going. Um, and then Tom Searcy, the gentleman I mentioned in the beginning, uh, he runs a couple of companies. One's called Hunt Big Sales. And one is um, Selling in Place. So Tom's got, I think, $18 billion in sales under his belt at this point. Wow. So a uh, very smart guy. Um, and, you know, so his books, um, he has one called Whale Hunting um, that I read years and years ago. And I was like, hmm, smart guy, you know? Mm -hmm. And then when I met him, I'm like, hmm, I was underestimating how smart this gentleman yeah. is. <laughs> so th those would be four of them. I mean, there's there's lots of them that I, you know, I continue to keep looking at and... Um, constantly trying to learn. Awesome. I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. We'll, uh, we'll make sure to add that in our show notes for people, uh, people listening to check out. Um, Doug, this, this has been great. I, I appreciate you jumping on SAS District. Uh, what, what are your future plans with your firm and uh, where can our audience get in touch with you to learn more about what you're working on? Well, uh, you know, we're in growth mode, which is great. I mean, you know, in 2020, I just did the numbers. It looks like we grew 22.4% this year. So, you know, not a bad growth rate for, for my company. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we're rolling out some, I, I've tried uh, Akil in some capacity, even though I was in the training business for a long time, supporting very, you know, well-known trainers. Um, I, I tried to stay out of it myself because it wasn't something that I was going to focus on. But what happened was, and I'm going to plug my book, uh, if you don't mind. <laughs> Go for it. Go for I wrote, the, I, I wrote, I've written four books, um, but I never published them because it was kind of like I'm a consultant and I didn't need to, right? That type of thing. Mm. Uh, but then I wrote a book called Win-Win Selling, Unlocking the Power of Profitability by Resolving Objections. And um, a friend of mine read the manuscript one time and said, you know, hey, why'd you write this book? And I said, well, I wrote it to help people. I hope, you know, people don't know how to handle rejection and they don't know how to handle objections without getting defensive. And that's where the, the game goes sideways for most people. Because So she read it. She goes, you know, this book's really good. She said, did you really write, read it, uh, you know, write it for people to, to have a better life? I said, yeah. She goes, well, how are they going to know it if you don't publish the book? And so I published the book and to, and to my surprise, it became an international bestseller and very quickly. And so out of that, people were now asking me, listen, let's get on some of your web trainings. Let's do this, right? And I was doing that. So long story short, um, I've had so much uh, public ask that I decided to start the training company next year. So I have something that I'm calling uh, Sales Revenue Growth University, mm -hmm. which I'm um, working on two things. Uh, number one, I'm teaching people how to definitely prospect, um, sell and get their mindset settled out and in, in what they need to do to grow. And then the second is I'm working uh, specifically with owners and CEOs of companies uh, in that training company to actually increase their revenues because there's about 30 points where if we look at them, they can increase their revenues depending on where they're at. Mm -hmm. um, and they can get a hold of me by, you know, they can either email me at doug at business successfactors.com 
Uh, they can call me directly at 603-595-0303 in the United States. Uh, and uh, if they want to get a copy of my book for free, uh, just pay shipping. It's uh, winwinsellingbook.com. Nice. Love it. I like to see how many people actually pick up the phone and call you and actually have a human conversation. <laughs> I, I would welcome it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Doug. Thank you again. And I appreciate you jumping on today. Oh, Akil, this has been a lot of fun and I really appreciate your great interviewer. So thank you. Thank you. Working on it. Appreciate it. <laughs> thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com. And myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.